This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and the ABC Listen app. Coming up, Jew versus Jew. Could Israel really descend into civil war? Now, at this time of the year, supermarket shelves are groaning with Easter chocolates. But there's a troubling story behind these products. Child exploitation and the mass destruction of forests are huge problems in the cocoa industry, cocoa being, of course, the main ingredient of chocolate. Carolyn Kitto is co-director of the organisation Be Slavery Free, and it compiles the annual chocolate scorecard. Around three quarters of the world's cocoa is grown in West Africa and the largest growing countries are Ghana and Côte d'Ivoire. We only have the figures for those two countries, but it's estimated around 1.5 million children are in forms of child labour. That's work that impinges their education and so on. And around 95% of them are actually in what's known as a worst form of child labour, which means they're also exposed to hazards They may have been trafficked and they're exposed to chemicals that damage their health. You mentioned there they may have been trafficked. Are we talking here about, in effect, children in modern slavery? Yes, we are. In Australia's legislation, worst forms of child labour is regarded as a form of slavery. What about children who are recruited to work on the family farm, though? This is common in parts of of Africa. Do they still face risks or dangers? Yes, and there's a bit of a scale, Andrew. So there's child help or child work, which is the normal kind of thing that's good for every child to do. Pack the dishwasher, sweep the floor, mow the lawn. What we're talking about is something that has moved on from that. It's not a good part of their socialisation. It will impact them in attending school. It will potentially be harmful to them because they're doing things like carrying loads that are too big for their body and will have potential long-term damage and impact. And then there's the additional things like being involved in what is actually very dangerous work. As I understand it, cocoa farmers have seen a dramatic fall in their incomes in recent years. Does this increase the impetus for child labour? Yes, it does, because we're talking about people who are extremely poor and we're talking about situations where they're just seeking to eke out an existence and what they have primarily to do that with is cocoa. So there's a couple of ways of thinking about it. Oxfam's just come out with a report saying that the overall value of a farmer's income has dropped by 16% in the harvest years 2021 to 2022. But many years ago, we're probably going back 30 or 40 now, a cocoa farmer used to receive about 50% of the value chain. So of a chocolate bar, about half of it was going back to the farmer. We now find that that's closer to 6 or 7%. So they're getting less, even though their cocoa is the most essential ingredient in the chocolate. You can't have chocolate without cocoa. And other people in the value chain are earning a lot more. So where's the money going? That's extraordinary, going from 50% to 6 or 7% of yes, the yes. product. 
Well, we're talking about some of the largest companies in the world, companies such as the company owned by the richest man in Italy. You're talking about companies like the fifth richest man in Austria, the fifth richest man in Germany, the third largest family-owned company in the US, the largest private trader in the US, and so on. So there are people that are making a lot of money out of this, and simply their dividends, a quarter or a third of them would actually pay for every farmer to have what we call a living income. Yeah, I mean, people can go to your website, chocolatescorecard.com. We can say, though, because it's a very controversial company, that that uh, Walmart in the United States rates very poorly on your yes. scorecard. Yes. What are you asking of chocolate companies and chocolate manufacturers? The two key asks that are foundational is, number one, find out where your cocoa comes from. Because if you don't know where it comes from, you actually can't know what's happening there. And if you don't know what's happening there, then you can't fix it. So that's number one. Trace where your cocoa comes from. About 50% of the cocoa in the world is what's called indirect. Nobody knows where it comes from. So we're asking them, first of all, to have a mechanism for tracing. And the second thing that we're asking for is to have a policy and a mechanism for living income, which means that in that context, they are earning enough to have enough food, water, sanitation, shelter, education for their kids and medical help when they need it and a little bit left over for those little emergencies that they can actually live a decent life. It's not just child exploitation that concerns you. A lot of chocolate manufacturers now promote themselves as sustainable. Mm. How serious are they? When you and I look at a label and it says 100% sustainably sourced, I think that that means that the farmer that grew it and the context in which it was grown were sustainable. What it actually means is that the company has a sustainability program. That program was probably in the area where the farmer grew the cocoa. So to be regarded as providing sustainably sourced cocoa, it might mean you participated in a 20-question survey that was part of the sustainability program. It doesn't mean that you are earning enough. It doesn't mean that your children are going to school. It doesn't mean that there was not deforestation or misuse of chemicals in the production of your cocoa. Yeah, the deforestation thing is huge, by the way. Uh, just remind us, your husband, uh, Fuzz Kitto, he was in West mm. Africa. He has a story to tell about yes. um, deforestation, what happened? Yes, well, he was up near the Liberian border and was asking a group of cocoa farmers what was happening with the deforestation of the forests up around that area. At first, they kind of looked at him and they told him to be quiet and he was a bit taken aback and they started hushing him and he thought that they were saying to him that they didn't want to talk about it. In fact, they were telling him to be quiet and listen. And after half a minute or so, they said, hear that noise? That's the caterpillar bulldozers deforesting the national park. Now, 30% of that deforestation is for the purpose of growing cocoa. And what's the scale, just finally, Carolyn, of that deforestation? Oh, the scale is extraordinary. So we're talking about 
again, nobody exactly knows, but in Ghana, you're talking around 84% of the natural protected national forests, and in Cote d'Ivoire, you're talking 90% have gone. 84 and 90% gone in those two countries. It's a statement worth repeating. Uh, you can find yeah. the chocolate scorecard at chocolatescorecard.com. It is produced by the organisation Be Slavery Free. Carolyn Kitto is one of the spokespeople. Carolyn, thanks for being on the program. Thank you, Andrew. Really appreciate it. And you're with me, Andrew West, on air and at the ABC Listen app. Is Israel really on the brink of a civil war? President Isaac Herzog certainly thinks so. He used those very words recently to talk about the huge anti-government protests that have gripped Israel. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has now delayed these controversial reforms to the Supreme Court, but the situation really is a tinderbox. Yossi Klein-Halevi from the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem writes about the crisis for ABC Religion and Ethics Online. Well, it depends what we mean by civil war. All-out war the way we've seen in Syria or Iraq, that's inconceivable. It's not going to happen. Certainly not in that way. But we certainly can have civil strife, which includes a measure of street violence. We're beginning to see that taking shape. Some of the pro-government people begun attacking the demonstrators we're a society that experienced the ultimate trauma of a political assassination of its prime minister. Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated in 1995. And certainly for my generation, the generation that lived through that moment, a certain psychological barrier was crossed. And we can no longer say that the inconceivable is impossible. Even though you say it would not be a civil war as we might understand it, it could be violence, no. street violence. Would it be Jew against Jew? Yes, that's what we're looking at. And that's what makes this so terrifying, really, because we've got lots of enemies waiting literally on our borders. And Israel's a very small country. It's hard sometimes for Australians to conceive just how intimate the geography in Israel is. You can cross the country within two hours, and that includes the West Bank. You can travel the, the length of Israel from the southern tip to the northern border in eight hours. That's the whole country. Mm. And I'm not by plane, by, you know, by car. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have Hezbollah on the north. We have Hamas in the south. We've got Iranian bases in Syria. And this is all... You know, within a couple hours of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, what keeps Israel strong is the cohesiveness of its people. And that's what's at risk right now. Where would the 21% of Israel's citizens who are Palestinians who feel increasingly alienated by their government, where would they sit in any civil strife? My strong sense is they would sit it out in the same way that, for the most part, sitting out this wave of demonstrations, which I think is very short-sighted. If Israeli democracy is seriously weakened, if we don't have the Supreme Court as the final guarantor of minority rights, the first community that will be affected will be Arab Israelis, Palestinian citizens of Israel. 
there are forces on the Israeli right who would like to deprive Palestinian citizens of the right to vote, or at the very least, to create the conditions under which parties that represent Palestinian Israelis would not be able to run in an election. So it's so much within their interest to ensure that Israel remains a strong democracy. Yeah, I did read, in addition to your fascinating piece on ABC Religion and Ethics website, I read as a sort of companion for that a very interesting piece in the London Review of Books by Tarek Bakoni. He did sort of suggest that some of the reason that many Israelis who call themselves liberal and progressive are protesting is because they're focused really on their own welfare. They're not actually thinking about their Palestinian brothers and sisters. We're in an emergency right now. And when you're in an emergency, you deal with the issue that's burning. When you're having a heart attack, you don't worry about cancer. We're having a heart attack right now. And to try to connect all issues, and of course, all issues are interrelated, ultimately. But right now, we need to make sure that Israel remains a democracy. That's the number one issue. When Israel is a democracy, at least one can conceive of reasonable solutions. If we lose our democracy, there's going to be very little left. And so to make these sweeping statements and to denigrate the democracy movement, which I think is the most extraordinary protest movement that Israel has ever experienced, every week, hundreds of thousands of people are in the streets. We're a small country, also in terms of population. We're 9 million people. When you have half a million people demonstrating every week, do the arithmetic. What Mm. would that be the equivalent of in Australia? And so it's a massive phenomenon. And I wouldn't take a cheap shot and blame this movement for what it's not dealing with. Mm. So I, I didn't read that article, but I consider it a cheap shot. Maybe not a cheap shot, but I think it comes from a place of saying that Palestinians are one in five Israelis and they don't appear to figure at this point, their interests don't appear to figure very prominently. Again, I think that it's in their interest in some ways before anyone else's to ensure that they have a court of last resort to protect them. We are seeing some Palestinian Israelis on the streets, nowhere near enough. You make this fascinating distinction in your very interesting piece between the conflict over a state of Judaism versus a state of the Jewish people. Just flesh that out. Yeah. So first of all, just to connect this with our immediate previous conversation about the place of Palestinian Israelis in Israeli society, my definition of Israel is that we are a Jewish state and a democratic state. And that, of course, is the official definition of the state itself. And my understanding of that is that Israel is the state of the Jewish people, of all Jews, whether or not they are citizens of Israel, they all have a stake in Israel. And it's also the state of all of its citizens, whether or not those citizens are Jews. So it's a very complicated, multi-dimensional identity, but Israel is a very complicated place. And that's one reason I think why people keep getting it wrong. (laughs) You know, it's like you look at Israel and you say, oh, I recognize that. No, well, yes, but every statement you could make about Israel, probably the opposite statement might be true as well. 
when you ask the question about Israel as the state of the Jewish people or the state of Judaism, there's a big debate about that in Israel. My camp, the liberal camp, sees the meaning of a Jewish state as being the state of the Jews as we are, not as we should be, not some idealized version, not who we once were. The Jewish people 200 years ago was an entirely religious people, a religion-based people. That's not who we are anymore. We do have a very strong and vibrant religious community. I personally am a religious Jew, but I believe that Israel cannot reflect a narrow religion-based Jewish identity that would exclude very large numbers of the Jewish people. And so that, for me, is the classical Zionist definition of Israel as a Jewish state, the state of the Jewish people, and not of Judaism, and in particular, not of one branch of Judaism, which is to say, Orthodox. Yeah, this is really fascinating, because the right of return, which itself is very controversial, because you know, of its exclusively Jewish nature. But nonetheless, the right of return is under attack, but from the right. Why? Yes. Well, first of all, the law of return is the least controversial law in Israel in terms of granting preferential immigration status to Jews. That is the foundational identity of Israel, that there's one little place on the planet where Any Jew who's ever in need knows that you have a destination. And that is the, if I would say, is the one non-negotiable element of Israel's Jewish identity. It's that. It's the law of return. So within Israel, that law is not controversial at all. The way that law is expressed is more complicated. How do you define who is a Jew? The Orthodox want a much more narrow definition Other Israelis want to preserve this very broad definition of anyone with a single Jewish grandparent or married to a Jew or who converts to Judaism should be granted immediate Israeli citizenship, which is what the law stipulates today. So that's what we're looking at now. This government would like to change that. They would like to do away with the very broad definition of who's eligible for Israeli citizenship by narrowing it at the very least, restricting it from anyone with one Jewish grandparent to anyone with one Jewish parent. Mm. What I find so fascinating about this, Yossi, though, is that hasn't the right wing always embraced the idea of the right of return as a way of bolstering Jewish numbers in a kind of demographic uh, struggle with the Palestinians? As I recall, just go back 10, 15 years, weren't Russian Jews or Russian immigrants whose Jewishness some people questioned, weren't they the bedrock of support for Avigor Lieberman? And he was, today they think of him as a moderate, but Avigor Lieberman yes. was a pretty hardline Jewish nationalist who wanted to exclude yes. Palestinians. Yes, he was, and he has moderated. So it's interesting to see how the Russian immigrant community, which, as you rightly put it, Uh, was very right-wing. Russian society is quite right-wing, very nationalist, and they reflected that. But coming to Israel, the community has really become much more a part of Israeli identity, and and we're seeing much more nuance. And what happened with Lieberman, I think, is a a very interesting test case of the complexity of Israeli society. What is the likelihood that if Israel continues on this path, you describe Netanyahu's government as the most ideological homogenous government um, in its history. 
wouldn't liberal Israelis simply immigrate? Wouldn't they go and build the same successful lives as their fellow Jews have done in Canada, Australia, the United States, Britain? Some will, certainly. But you know, Israelis have sacrificed an enormous amount for this country. We go to the army, our children go to the army. We've all been through waves of terrorism. There's a very deep organic connection between Israelis and this country that transcends rational considerations. Certainly, if the situation worsens, there will be people who will leave, and I don't judge anyone. My sense is most of us are going to stay and fight for the Israel that we believe in. And Israel's too precious to abandon to this extremist government. I consider this government an anomaly, a moral disgrace, and I will not allow this government to speak in the name of of Israel, of the Jewish people, certainly not without being out there on the streets and contesting their right to define us. We're a 4,000-year-old people, and this, I believe, is going to be a passing nightmare. Yossi Klein Halevi, a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartmut Institute in Jerusalem. Yossi's latest book is Letters to My Palestinian Neighbour, and you can read his latest essay at ABC Religion and Ethics Online. Thank you very much for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The COVID pandemic saw us all locked down, often cut off from family and friends. In the online world, though, hatred and conspiracy festered. Many Australian Muslims suffered COVID-related abuse. Associate Professor Deria Inner of Charles Sturt University helped compile the latest report from the Australian Islamophobia Register. We see really clear patterns in terms of gender, age and race can be enablers of Islamophobia. For example, 78% of victims are women and 70% of perpetrators are men. But it means that one third of perpetrators are women. There are also interesting gender dynamics there, but this is the gender pattern we see. But also in terms of age, victims are from younger cohorts, especially 20 to 30 age group. And perpetrators are from older cohorts, like a 40 age and above. So from what I gather, most victims, they would be young Muslim women, visibly Muslims, young women wearing the headscarf, for example. Yes, visibility is a big, big indicator because even when you look at the rhetoric, both in online and offline hate rhetoric, the most popular rhetoric is about Muslims' religious visibility. But also another layer is vulnerable people are selected for a purpose. When I say vulnerable, it is women with hijab, women with children, or children alone. We don't see many women attacked or abused in the presence of a male company, for example. Mm. We don't see any child abused in the presence of a male company. So there is for sure a misogynist, I think, selection, but I would say it is very opportunistic as well because people are trying to targets individuals who cannot defend themselves. But also, we also had men 
wearing traditional or religious long robes and they were identifiable and their attack, they're targeted as well. And these tend to be abusive or aggressive comments on the streets in public places. Yes, unfortunately. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic posed a particular challenge. Um, What was that? How did the pandemic add to these incidents of Islamophobia? That's a really good question. One thing is the number of reports dropped significantly in this period. So we had about 90 cases reported, but we can see some reasons behind that. First, reporting Islamophobia was not priority for Muslims because they were going through a lot of other challenges. So reporting Islamophobia was not their priority. But also, as you know, that time, anti-Asian racism was on the rise. So it gave a temporary, I think, release for Muslims from racism. And also the physical circumstances were not eligible, convenient enough to commit physical abuses. It is very much in line with the trend in the other Western countries as well. So it's not unique to Australia. Interestingly enough, when we look at the entire range, we ask people to express if there was any emotion they felt that expression of negative or impactful emotions increased in 2020 and 2021, especially in response to online cases. So online cases were also impacted. The sort of harassment that Australian Muslims faced during the COVID pandemic, it was based on what? Uh, Accusations that they weren't observing lockdowns, I think, was one of the accusations. Yes, I think there were some news about Muslims not following the rules and restrictions and not doing their jobs properly as if they caused COVID outbreak or new clusters starting in the Muslim regions or Muslim-populated suburbs. So that was the rhetoric sometimes in media as well. And as a result of that rhetoric, we see everyday people harassments. Similar, I think, logic was echoed or followed. For example, one Muslim was abused for not wearing the mask properly. But when you see the rhetoric, it is beyond that because there are some deep-rooted, I think, sentiments behind it, as if Muslims are backwards, they don't know how to follow rules, or Muslims as if they're bringing COVID from overseas by flying from their home countries to Australia, and as if not following the restrictions, and that's why causing lockdowns. There were some incidents, though, I think, where Islamic leaders themselves did have to, and we interviewed a couple on this program, did address their communities about the importance of suspending large gatherings, large family and community gatherings. I think that was particularly the case in Melbourne. How did those incidents feed into public prejudice? Yeah, but again, I will just project on media as well, because there was a case and the media announced that That outbreak was due to a school and a teacher in that school not following properly rules. But again, when you look at these news and the community's response and the school response, the school was uh, shut down by that time. 
So it's impossible. So I see that this putting pressure on Muslims and especially during, I think, celebrations, for example, when there was no congregational prayers on Fridays, so there were still speculations about Muslims spreading the virus. So I think that were unfounded fake news. Associate Professor Deria Inner of Charles Sturt University and the Australian Islamophobia Register. And that's the show for today. You can find us at the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Hong Jang and Isabella Tropiano. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.